Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John. You probably won't hear those words much longer since we're in the last chapter of that book, John chapter 21. And we're bringing this study to a close after two and a half years. Not closing it today, but coming to a close (laughs) in the last chapter. Would you pray with me? Lord, every single one of us has a need. We have wants, but we have needs, and you know both. You know what we want, but you know what we need. Moreover, you have all the resources to meet exactly what we need, and that's where we come in as we gather here today. We pray that you will speak to the deep places of our lives, ministering to us through the Word of God, the Scriptures themselves, speaking to needs. Help us in our minds not to marginalize truths that we hear or to pass them off as irrelevant to us or thinking that others besides us need to be here to hear the message. You've gathered us and we are your people. And we say to you, speak and we will listen. Help us as we study together and consider in Jesus' name. Amen. The earliest memories of my boyhood include fishing. Not because I was particularly good at it. I was not. But my father loved to fish. So he would take his four boys to a place called Jess Ranch in California. And those were ponds that were stocked with trout. I mean, they filled those babies up, and then you stand in front of them and throw whatever you want into them. And and anybody can catch a fish, even me. That's how I I learned the craft. Um, Then he took us up to southern Oregon. We spent most of our summers as boys up in um, southern Oregon, Klamath Falls, the lakes and rivers around. Again, my dad would go fishing, and we would be with him. Then we graduated to deep sea fishing where he would take us out of Newport Beach, California and we'd go out to the high seas, spend the night on the boat. And I discovered then as a boy that a full stomach and a boat ride don't really go well together. We go barracuda fishing, that I remember. Now, I wasn't very interested in fishing and I wasn't very good at fishing and number two was true because number one was true but I do remember what it felt like to catch something on the other end of the line to have that snag that pull that hook an exhilarating feeling even if it was just a can or a rock it's like whoa Another memory I have of fishing was much later on when a friend of mine, Randy Schneider, decided I needed to learn how to fly fish because he said it was the coolest thing ever. So I went to the High Sierras with Randy Schneider. He was an expert at fly fishing. He had the art down, the the whole casting thing. It was beautiful. And I went with him. I had never done it before. And what really ticked him off is I caught the biggest fish that day. (laughs) Beginner's luck. He hated me for that. Now, I know when you hear a fish story, you're always suspect, right? Because they tend to grow as the story gets told over and over again. Uh, It's been said that there are more fish that come out of streams than are actually in the streams. But every now and then you come to an honest fish story, like this one. 
Jim Byrne, who lived in Australia, fishing off the coast of Australia, marlin fishing, one day hooked a giant marlin. It took him a long time, hours, to fight with that struggling thing and bring it into the boat, which he did. He finally got it on deck, but the fish wasn't done fighting. True story. The fish took its spear and poked it right into the chest of Jim Byrne, narrowly by a fraction of an inch, missing his heart and lungs. And then the sword came out of the chest, and the fish happily flopped over back into the ocean and swam away. A total bummer for Jim Byrne and anyone who had that experience. True story. We come in the Bible to another fishing story, a true one. It is about fishing, but it's more about people than it is about fishing. John chapter 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed Himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, He showed Himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two others. We don't know whom. They're anonymous. So seven altogether of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. When the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, equivalent would be fellas, do you have any food? That is, have you caught anything? They answered, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, we now know that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 200 cubits, that's 300 feet, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to the land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to the land full of large fish, 153. So somebody's counting. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. I find something fascinating about John's writings. As I read chapter 20, the chapter right before this, it seemed like that was an appropriate ending. Because the last two verses of chapter 20 are like an epilogue. Those last two verses, it says, And truly, many other signs Jesus did in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. It sounds like a closing statement. It's a perfect way to close a book. But John gives us a whole other chapter, 25 more verses, three more paragraphs. Why? Why after that perfect ending does he continue the story? Let me suggest to you two reasons. Reason number one, because John was a good friend. And his buddy Peter had denied the Lord. And John wants us, his readers, to know how Jesus restored his buddy Peter back into useful ministry. Because otherwise, we would be reading the book of Acts and discover how prominent Peter is in those first 12 chapters. And we'd be asking, how did that happen? Where was I? How did Peter, who denied the Lord and just sort of fell off the map, become so prominent in in this early church? And John tells us how that happens. He gives us, as a friend, what happened to his friend, his buddy Peter. Here's another reason, I believe. Because Peter is a great, or John is a great teacher. And John wants us, his readers, to know how to relate to a resurrected and soon returning Lord. And that really is what we're going to talk about today. How do we relate to a Savior who's alive and is coming back? Because here's the deal. After Jesus rose from the dead, you discover that He just sort of shows up, pops in, comes to a place, and then disappears suddenly at, at whim, it would seem. So you might be having an early morning walk, like the two guys on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus just shows up. Hi. Or you might be having an evening meal, like the apostles in the upper room, and Jesus pops in. Peace to you. And then he leaves. Or you might be having a heated discussion, like Thomas, who said, I won't believe unless I can touch his side and his hands. And Jesus just shows up, and then he leaves. Or you might be like these guys here going to work. And there is Jesus standing on the shore. Can you imagine living that way? Always having to be on the alert. Jesus might show up. Where is He going to be next? You know what? You know what? You do live that way. Or I should say, you should live that way. Because the truth of the matter is, this risen, resurrected Lord is returning. And the Bible says He can come at any moment And we ought to also be on the alert, knowing that He could come at any moment. As Jesus said, Watch therefore, for your Lord comes at an hour you do not know. So there's the question. How do we live while we're waiting for the Lord to return? What things do we do? And I think the answers are all found in the paragraph we just read. There's four principles I want you to look at with me this morning. Number one... We need to be together. We need to be together. As we're waiting for the Lord to return, we need to frequently get together. We read in verse 2 that these disciples, and there were seven of them, were all together. Now here is a good example, a great pattern that they will follow the rest of their days together. You don't have to turn there, but in the book of Acts, chapter 1 Verse 4, it says, And being assembled together, they kept the same pattern. Acts chapter 2, verse 4, they were in the same place 
in one accord. They were assembled together. So as we're waiting for the Lord to return, one of the fundamental things, and every Christian ought to know this, is we ought to gather frequently. I always found it interesting, the word that Jesus chose to describe us. He called us a church. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now we've heard that word for so many years. We think, well, here it is. This is the church. We're inside church. I'm going to church. And it's become such a religious word. But you got to know that when Jesus said, my church, it meant something far different originally. It was actually a secular term of a group of citizens called out of their city or society to assemble together regularly. It comes from two Greek words, ek kaleo, and the word is ekklesia for church. And the word ekklesia from the words ek kaleo means to be called out and to meet together. That's the idea. So think of it this way. If Jesus refers to us as an assembly, he must want us to assemble. And that's the idea. So here's what I think is a biblical definition of the church. A holy assembly called out separately to meet regularly that worship Christ principally. That's a church. He calls us out and we gather frequently and we meet together. He said, I will build my church. He didn't say, and upon this rock, I will build my monastery. Or upon this rock, I will build my private little meeting place where you can go all on your own and you never have to be with other people. Every now and then I meet people who say, I'm a Christian, I just don't like God's people. I don't want to be around church people. I don't go to church. I'm not a church person. As you're waiting for the Lord, you need to be in church. You need to be with God's people. And so they were meeting and they were together. And that's the way God designed us, folks. God designed us that we would be integrated with each other, not isolated from each other. Now we're facing a problem, you and I. It's called the age of technology. And this wonderful age in which we live, the technology, I see iPads and iPhones and people are reading their Bibles and hopefully you're not socially networking right now, but <laughs> let me just talk a little bit about that because I bet a lot of you do socially network at Facebook and, and Twitter and I do the same thing, but there's, there's a facade that that gives to us. There's a veneer. It's a lie. You think you're really connected with people because you go online and you can email or you can Facebook, right? Studies prove that with our increase of technology, our society is becoming more isolated and lonelier. Because nothing, nothing can take the place of being together in eye-to-eye relationship. Being in each other's presence. You can't go out and buy Fellowship 3.0, Acceptance 7.1, you have to be with people. It's the way we're designed. And worldly groups or social networking or all of the technology cannot take the place of what God knows you and I need. We need to be together. I want you to turn in your Bibles, keep a marker here, and turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, just for a couple of verses. 
Of course, if you don't have a Bible and you have a cool little iPhone or iPad, all you got to do is I'm there. But for the rest of us, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. That is best done when you're actually with somebody else. Stir up love and good works. Not forsaking, here it is, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. You might ask, well, how often do I have to get together? Wrong question. It should be, how often do I get to do this? When my wife, Lenny, was first saved, she discovered there were church services every night. And you know what? She went every night. Because she wanted to learn and grow as much as she could. It wasn't like, do I have to go? It's like, do I get to go? But notice what the writer says. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Why is that the manner of some? Why is it that the manner of some is church consists of Christmas, Easter, and maybe a wedding or funeral from time to time? Why is it the manner of some that you have to drag them to church? I'll buy you lunch and dinner for a week if you come. Okay. And others, you have to drag from church. They love it so much. Why is it the manner of some, I don't need to go through the Bible with the rest of the group Wednesday night. I'll just get my sporadic fix from time to time. Why is that the manner of some? Because they don't get this need. We need to be together and much more as the day is approaching. There's an old Jewish proverb that says, A man without friends, a friendless man is like the left hand bereft of the right hand. And I would say an isolated Christian is like the left hand bereft from the right hand. Listen to this. This is right out of the Bible. Proverbs 18, verse 1. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. When we gather together, we get the collective judgment of God's people, especially when we base our meeting together on the Word of God. We need this. We need to be together. Let's go back to John 21. The second thing we need, according to our text, is we need to be active We read in verse 3, Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. And the other guy said, I'm going fishing with you. They were fishermen. Now, I want to just dispel something. Because I've read it in some commentaries, and I've heard some sermons, and I've heard Christians talk. And this is how it goes. Peter and these disciples had no business going fishing. Because that's what Jesus called them out of. And said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. So they shouldn't have gone back. They were backsliding. Going to Galilee. No, they weren't. You know why they were in Galilee? Because Jesus said, go to Galilee and wait for me there. So they're being obedient to him and they're going to Galilee. And while they're waiting for him to return, they don't know when he's going to come. Peter goes, I'm going fishing. (gasps) Oh no. Really? You're going to say that to a fisherman? You see, Peter needs to eat. And there's a lake in front of them, and he knows how to work the lake. So he and the other guys go get a meal. Or maybe their thought was, we have some bills to pay off. But the point is they were 
actively waiting. That's the point. You know, you can wait passively or you can wait actively. And I suggest until the Lord returns, we stay busy. We wait actively. We don't put our feet up and our hands back. We go, I'm just waiting for the Lord. No, as you're waiting for the Lord, stay busy. Stay active. Luke 19 is a parable. The bottom line, Jesus says, Therefore, occupy, or do business. Occupy until I come. Stay busy. Move. Be active. Live your life. Pay your bills until the Lord comes back. I've always discovered it's easier to direct a moving object than an object at rest. If you want to learn how to ride a bicycle, don't just park the bicycle and go watch a video on how to ride a bicycle. Book, How to Ride a Bicycle. I'm going to study this book. Get on that, baby. And let somebody push you. Because once that gets speed going and it's moving, it's going to be a lot easier to direct it once it's moving than when it's standing still. And so it is with us. We move. We live our lives. We pay our bills. We make our decisions, trusting that the Lord's going to direct us as we're moving. And I think that's the way to do it. Wait on the Lord actively. It's a great text of Scripture that has this principle. Let me tell it to you. In... um, Genesis 24, I believe. The servant of Abraham, by the name of Eliezer, is being sent out by Abraham to find a wife for his son Isaac, right? And so he describes the process. This is what he says. Eliezer speaking, and I quote, And I, being in the way, the Lord led me. I, being in the way, the Lord led me. Get in the way. Get in God's way. Get in the flow of where... Find out where God is moving and get in the way. And I, being in the way, the Lord led me. And the Lord will lead you as you and I are in the way. And so the key is stay busy, stay active. I want you to turn to one more scripture. You say, wait a minute, I thought this is John 21. Bear with me. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4 for just two more verses. 1 Thessalonians 4. If you're wondering where that is, it's right before 2 Thessalonians. So just turn right and go down a few streets and you'll see it on on your right. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 11. Paul writing to this young church. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life to mind your own business. I know some people that ought to underline that and memorize that one. And to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. In other words, stay busy, work hard, pay your bills. You know why Paul wrote that? Most scholars believe Paul is writing this book. Here's one of the reasons. Many of the Thessalonian believers had quit their jobs believing the Lord would come back at any moment. And if God's coming back, if Jesus is coming back, we might as well just quit our jobs and wait for Him to come. Why go to work? So in quitting their jobs, they have time on their hands, and now they become, instead of busy, they become busy bodies. They start getting involved. Well, you know what? I've been looking at your life. Well, you know what? Get out of my life and go do your job. That's what Paul is saying. Stay busy. Stay active. 
I remember in the um, Jesus movement, we called it, in the late 60s, early 70s. That's when I was saved, mid-early 70s. I was going to college. And um, I was called unspiritual because I was going to college. And here's why. I had friends say, Jesus is going to come back before you graduate. Why are you in college? Some of them were even quitting their jobs and, get this, maxing out their credit cards. Because, after all, if Jesus is going to come back, I can buy now and never have to pay. Not a good witness. Bad idea. A man went to a doctor. And a doctor gave him a thorough examination. He goes, Doctor, you've got to tell me what's wrong. So, blood work, total physical. And the patient said, Okay, doctor, lay it on me. Give it to me straight. Tell me what's wrong. I can take it. He goes, You want me to tell you honestly what's wrong? He goes, Yes, sir. Doctor said, There's absolutely nothing wrong with you except one thing. You're just plain lazy. And the man thought about it for a moment. He said, Would you say that again in medical terminology so I can tell my wife? I think a lot of people try to couch their excuses in spiritual terminology. Well, the Lord led, and I'm waiting. And You know what? Paul says, stay active, stay busy. Be together. Be active. Here's the third principle back in John 21. Be obedient. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. He said, I love this part. I absolutely love this part. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. This is only four feet from the first spot. And you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of the fish. I love it when Jesus talks to these experts. They've been fishing all night, because that was the best time for net fishing in the Sea of Galilee. You begin at sunset and you fish into the night and they were doing it all night and caught the zip zero nada nothing and jesus asked them what have you caught and they said we've caught nothing it's interesting that jesus was on the shore and they didn't recognize him we discover this a lot with some post-resurrection appearances there he is they don't know it's him how much is that like us right We think God's abandoned us. God's not here. He's right there. He said He'll never leave you or forsake you. You Remember the story in the Old Testament of Jacob when he ran away from home? And he went to this, what he would consider a God-forsaken place, way out in the middle of nowhere, put his head on a rock and went to sleep that night thinking, God is so far away from me. I've ran away from His will. And he gets a vision that night, a dream of angels descending a ladder from heaven to the earth and going back up. He wakes up the next day and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. Did you hear that? I know it now, but I knew it not. Yesterday, last night, I didn't know he was in this place. I thought I was alone. The Lord is present tense in this place and I knew it not, but I know it now. So there's Jesus on the shore. There's the disciples in the boat. Jesus shouts out, Hey, have you dudes caught anything? No. And so, we'll cast your net on the other side. Why did Jesus ask him the question? Is it because he didn't know the answer? Was he really trying to get information that he didn't already have? No. 
He asked them the question so they would admit their failure and recognize their need. My failure, I haven't caught anything. My need, I need to catch something for a meal. So, to admit their failure, to recognize their need. You will discover in the Bible that God uses this method frequently. He'll ask a question to Adam in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. God cried out, Adam, where are you? God knew exactly where he was. He wanted Adam to admit where he was. Far away from you, God. Have you eaten of that tree that I commanded you not to eat? Again, a question. Or Elijah, the prophet, who ran away down into the wilderness, sat under a broom tree and said, God, I just want to die. God didn't go up to Elijah and go, Oh, poor little Elijah. He said this, Elijah, what are you doing here? It's a good question. What are you doing here? Dude, you just killed thousands of prophets of Baal and one little gal, one little lady, Jezebel, threatened your life and you run away and you want to die. What are you doing here? And so here to these guys, did you catch anything? No. Because he wants them to admit their failure. Now listen, we all fail. And did you know that failure is actually good for us? If you have all success, nobody wants to be around you. If you fail at something, it causes you to slow down, to pause, to think about your methods, to think about your motives, and to be open for something new. You learn from that. You are open to another thing, like casting your net four feet away. Most of the time you go, what good is that going to do? They'll do it now. They've caught nothing and they admitted it. Let me tell you about a failure. This young man was an aspiring politician. He ran for state legislature. He was defeated. He decided to quit politics, went into business, was a failure at business. Spent the next 17 years of his life paying off the debts of a worthless partner who got him into debt. Then he found a girl that he was engaged to. She died. Then he decided, I'm going back into politics. Ran for several offices, defeated, defeated, defeated. But eventually that man, Abraham Lincoln, became the President of the United States. He learned at each juncture from his failure and was open to trying something different. Have you caught anything? No. And then Jesus says, cast your nets on the other side. Now, who was it that discovered it was the Lord? Who was it? John, the disciple Jesus loved. John, it wasn't Peter. Now, I'm not going to chide Peter, but I am going to applaud John. Because this is so much like John to be quick on the draw, right? At the tomb, who discovered Jesus was risen from the dead? Wasn't Peter, it was John. They both looked in and Peter saw it and believed. And Peter's just kind of scratching his head going, Cool. I don't know what this means. But John did and Peter believed after John. So John recognizes this and says, That's the Lord. And that's when Peter says, Good enough for me. Jumps in the water. (laughs) With with his robe on. Like, okay, well, how good is that? It's not going to keep you warm in the water. Number two, you're going to get out soaking wet and colder than when you got in, but whatever. Okay, so, question. How did John 
figure out that's the Lord. Here's my hunch. John saw what was happening and said, there's only one explanation for this. The same exact thing happened to us two years ago. Now, you don't have to turn there, but let me read this account to you. This is an account that happened two years, two and a half years prior to this. When Jesus called them formally to be his disciples, Jesus is at the Sea of Galilee. A crowd of people gather. Jesus steps into a boat, teaches from the boat, and after the sermon, it says, when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. What I think Peter was saying to the Lord is, look, I'm the fisherman, you the preacher. I know about fishing, you don't. I've done it all night and caught nothing, but you know what? You want to go fishing, preacher? I'll humor you, I'll let down my nets. So we did. And it says, when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. John, after the resurrection, sees what is happening and goes, I know the explanation. That has to be the Lord. Because this happened to us a couple years ago and it was the Lord. You see, there are some things that happen in life and there's only one explanation. It's the Lord. How do you explain what happened on the day of Pentecost? Thousands of people getting saved when Peter spoke. That's the Lord. How do you explain a drug addict or a prostitute getting off that stuff and being in love with Jesus? Only one explanation. That's the Lord. How do you explain what has happened here with this church, with this bonehead pastor? There's only one explanation. It's got to be the Lord. And anybody who knows me really well goes, Amen, it is the Lord. But here's the deal. They were obedient. Isn't it amazing that the difference, the only difference between failure and success was four feet? One side of the boat, the other side of the boat. Do it. It's got to be the Lord. I know people who are in Christian service and they strive and they organize and they work and they spend and there's no fruit, there's no results. Listen, you have to be more than competent and diligent and relevant. You need to be obedient and listen carefully. Is this what the Lord is telling me to do at this time? I want to follow as I'm moving in the way. I want to follow His impulse because I want to see fruit come out of it. Back in John now, finally we will close it off by saying, here's the fourth principle. We need to be intimate with the Lord. We need to be together. We need to be active. We need to be obedient. But above all else, and springing from this last principle is, we need to be intimate with the Lord. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Then Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. Now this is the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. I can almost guarantee you 
that if you could have interviewed these disciples... Okay, so picture it. You're down there at the Sea of Galilee. You've got your little microphone. News camera's right there. And you say your name. and Peter, John, James, come here. I want to interview you guys. Listen, this is a pretty epic day, right? So what was the best part of the day? That none of them would say the best part of today was being together in the boat. Even though they loved each other, that wasn't the best part of the day. They wouldn't have said... The best part of the day was the miraculous catch of fish. Man, when we put the nets on the right side and it was that many fish, unbelievable. Highlight of the day. They wouldn't have said that. They would have all said, the highlight of the day was eating breakfast with Jesus. When we were with Him together, and it reminded us of that sweet intimacy of that Last Supper, and He was feeding us fish and bread, we were in His presence, that was the best part. That was the highlight of it. And that's the principle of worship. We need to be together. That's fellowship. We need to be active. That's partnership. We need to be obedient. That's stewardship. But we need to be intimate with Christ. That's worship. Do you know that it's possible to be so busy doing the king's business that you actually forget the king himself. You can work and serve and stress out, and you don't spend time with him. And that's a mistake, because all of the activity, all of the obedience, all of the togetherness should be formed in that place of intimacy with the Lord and worship. There was a church that did this. It was the church of Ephesus. Jesus wrote a postcard. Let's call it an email. In Revelation 2, he said to the church of Ephesus, you guys are are great. You labor, you work, you persevere, you have patience. But I have something against you. You have left your first love. Or one translation says, you don't love me like you did at first. You're busy, you're serving, you're working, you're active, but you don't love me. It's not based upon an intimate relationship. You say, is that even possible? Is it possible to serve the Lord and not love the Lord? I'm here to tell you it is. Think with me. There's several different motives that keep Christians busy and active. And they're not always the best motives. Motive number one, guilt. And they always talk about being involved in this church. Okay, I want to alleviate my guilt, so I'll do something. I feel better. I'm not guilty. Reason number two. There's some psychological need to exercise a gift so that when I exercise this gift, when I sing, when I speak, I feel so much better, fulfilled. Okay, not the best motive because you're doing it just for you. A third motive, because when I do this thing, people see me. Not a good motive. The best motive is because I love Jesus. I love Him. And part of my worship to Him is to do this for Him, knowing that I'm doing it with Him. So it's more than your hands in the water getting fish. It's your hearts on fire before the Lord. I close with a story, a true story. I read it, so it has to be true. No, it was was cited with names and dates and everything. True story. Husband and wife 
sold stocks and bonds and a lot of their possessions and bought this cool, killer RV, motorhome. Had everything in it. It was their dream to drive around the country and see it. So they began in Southern California going up Highway 1 and then the freeway. They were going up the coast into Oregon, Washington, and then across. The husband drove first. He was so stoked he got behind the wheel and rode it for hours. But after a while, he was tired and said to his wife, Will you drive? She said, I'd love to. She gets behind the wheel. She puts it on cruise control, right? You maintain your speed, cruise control. And then after it's on cruise control, she gets up, (laughs) goes back to use the bathroom. Because she thought cruise control was the same as automatic pilot in her mind. Now that's what she told the California Highway Patrol after the accident. Um, The RV was totaled. Husband and wife were were both okay. Motorhome was totaled. She thought cruise control meant autopilot. If you think that you can live the Christian life on autopilot or cruise control, then you need to put on the brakes today. And think about all that you do in your fellowship, all that you do in your service, and even your obedience, and ask, does it come, is it formed by a heart of, I really am in love with Jesus. And all that I do springs from the time that I spend in fellowship with Him. That's the gas pedal you need to use today. Worship. Devotion. Because all the rest will spring from that. Father, that's where we want to close, and we're so thankful that John didn't close in the 20th chapter. That he included these stories that we might know what happened to Peter, as we'll discover next time, and also how we are to relate to the resurrected and soon-returning Lord who may show up at any moment. And we live, in a sense, on our tiptoes, awaiting for that return. I pray that we would begin like these disciples began early in the morning with breakfast with Jesus, that we would begin early every morning in fellowship with you. It's in His mighty name we pray. Amen.